Welcome to SciSection. My name is Luke Peterson, and I'm a journalist for the SciSection radio show, broadcasted on the CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. And we are here today with Dr. Avi Adhikari. So thank you for taking the time to meet with me, Avi. Thank you for having me. Right. So um, would you mind starting off by telling your audience what your role is at UCLA and what some of your research interests are? Yes, uh, so I am an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at UCLA, mm -hmm. and I teach both undergraduate and graduate courses related to neuroscience. And my main activity is leading a neuroscience lab that studies how the brain controls fear and anxiety related symptoms by using mice as an animal model. All right, so can you tell us a little bit about your most recent research with these neural circuits and um what, what you've been able to infer from what you found? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've been studying anxiety for many years and so far we've found that there are different circuits that control distinct symptoms related to uh, high fear and anxiety states. So for example, you might have noticed from your own experience that when you are in a high fear, high anxiety state, you notice many different um, changes happening. So for example, one change might be that your respiration rate goes up or that your heart rate goes up or that you avoid going to places that seem riskier to you. And then we found circuits in the brain that control those different types of symptoms. And we found that those are kind of controlled by somewhat different circuits. And now we are studying more not exactly those changes in respiration rate, but more how the brain controls escape from very potentially lethal dangerous threats. And those would be things like uh, someone attacking you or like a, someone with a gun firing or asphyxiation or like a predator biting, something like that. That's very high intensity. And sort of the normal kind of healthy response in those situations is to escape, which is why the brain is kind of very well coped to identify threats quickly. And then if they're evaluated as being very high intensity, then it initiates an escape response. So that all makes sense. But the same circuits that initiate these escapes from threats, when these circuits become overactive inappropriately, they can lead to uh, very overwhelming and devastating panic attacks in people. Hmm. And so we are studying the neural basis of the circuit that control escape. And because they're implicated in um, panic attacks, they have this clinical relevance as well. And more specifically, what we're looking at is how the brain controls these more um, versatile types of escape. And what I mean by that is that when in your real life, if you have some dangerous situation that you encounter, such as say the room bursts into flames with the fire or something like that, then you will try to escape, but then you have to very quickly evaluate the layout of the environment and figure out like how to escape. Like I'll go into this door, then there's a fire exit at this location. So you have to very quickly uh, understand what to do. So you can't just run around and jump in random directions. And so that's true both of you know, humans and other animals. 
-hmm. And that's clearly an important process that's happening in real life. Um, but in the lab, typically when neuroscientists are studying escape-related behaviors, they do that in relatively simple environments where the animal doesn't have to do anything particularly complicated to escape. So it doesn't require um, this quick calculation that has to integrate spatial navigation and memory of the context with the desire to escape from the threat. So we try to look at which brain circuits control uh, that type of behavior. And then we found out surprisingly that all the brain regions that had been studied as being important for generating escape motions so far that had been um, more well-studied in the literature, they did indeed cause escape as reported by other scientists. So if you stimulate them artificially, those brain regions do cause running around and jumping and these very vigorous actions that are related to escape. But they were not able to induce escape from a more complicated environment where that's more naturalistic for the animal has to figure out what is a more reasonable escape route where you know, have to go through this tunnel and jump and go here and which is more similar to if you try to escape from a building in flames you have to figure know, you know how to escape so we found out a circuit in the brain that can control this more complex and versatile kind of escape and it was also surprising that this brain region was located in the hypothalamus which uh, maybe some of our listeners have heard about so it's a part of the brain that's very evolutionarily old and typically not thought to be involved in very complicated types of behaviors and instead generally thought to be more important for um, hardwired types of inflexible behaviors so we found that this very old brain region could generate this complicated uh, escape motion that integrates the geometry of the location to trace a more optimal escape realm. Okay. Yep. Um, so um, do, you, do you think that um, the brain is a very complicated organ with a lot of substructures that interact with each other? Do you, do you think it's um, that the traditional view where people look at, um, like, people tend to make a battery between one part of the brain and the other. Do you think that, that it's a lot more integrated than that? A what? A battery? Oh, boundaries. Like, um, like... Boundaries, okay. Right. So um, do, you, do you think that um, the brain is really more of an integrated structure than just, you know, two blocks next to one another, maybe? That, um, these, that, um, parts of the brain that we thought were only intended for um, a very specific set of functions actually are responsible for much more. That, like, that, that, I think that's what you implied when you talked about the hypothalamus or um, the hippocampus. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, hypo, uh, hypothalamus. Okay. But so the answer is not a yes or no answer. It's sort of a more nuanced. So, it is clearly true based on you know, thousands of published reports that there is some specialization of function in the brain. So it's not true that all the brain regions can affect all the processes that the brain controls. That's clearly not the case. Mm -hmm. But it's also not true that each region or circuit has only 
one very specific function and, and that's it. So it's not that either. It's sort of, um, they have, each region has some specialization among a few functions, but, but not others. And there are also some functions that each brain region is doing that we haven't found out. But it's definitely not the case that every region is doing everything that can be done in terms of neural function. Okay. Um, so I read a few of your research papers um, before we started talking today. And um, I think the mm -hmm. phrase top-down organization was used a lot. Um, so can you, uh -huh. can you describe what that refers to and um, how, how that has, how you've applied that to your work or what you found that relates to that? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so the first, just to define the terms, is that top-down in neuroscience is not really referring to directions like up and down, but rather referring to top-down sort of uh, brain function hierarchy, mm -hmm. where in neuroscience, typically, we classify different parts of the brain as being more near the top or the bottom or down, where, and that means is that the we conceptualize the brain as having these kind of modules that intercommunicate and then the more top modules are thought of being primarily uh, the cortex which is kind of more outer layer of our human brain which is responsible for these uh, actions like planning and comparing different options and deciding what to do. So these sorts of more cognitively demanding actions. And then the kind of more bottom of the, the hierarchy are these structures that are more directly related to movement generation, like the spinal cord is very directly related to um, moving the arms and the legs and creating movements, but it's not related to planning what to do or evaluating among different circumstances or comparing what you should do with your memories. And those are kind of more top functions and these more functions related to directly perceiving what's happening in the world, like um, through your skin senses, like heat and temperature, or also just the cells that are more related to generating movements. Those are categorized more as being bottom in the top-down hierarchy. Hmm. And one way to think of that in a more concrete term with something that we're more familiar with is something like a hierarchy within a corporation where the CEO is sort of thought to be at the top of the hierarchy and they are usually not responsible for directly doing things like cleaning the floors or ordering supplies or dealing with the customer in the store. They're not doing that directly, but they're more involved in these kind of more higher scale, broader actions of like what the budget of the company should be, that, that kind of thing. And so, the, so that's the equivalent of the cortex in the brain, I mean, roughly speaking. And then the people that in the company are actually in a store or selling something to a customer, answering questions or uh, box unboxing things and putting them in shelves, which is more directly related to what's observable 
usually happening from the company. Those are kind of more equivalent to what the say spinal cord would be doing in the nervous system. So that's kind of the hierarchy. And so those are the two extremes, like the course in the most on the top, but there's also, but, and main, most of the brain regions are kind of somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. So the amygdala is a region in the brain that's somewhat in between, like it's not the, in the cortex, but it's also not in the very bottom of the hierarchy. So it's, so, it's somewhere in between them. It's in the, it's and, in the system, right? It's a, part, it's a part of the limbic system? It's a part of the limbic system, yeah. So the amygdala is the brain region that, as you said, is part of the limbic system, and it's been very well studied for its role in controlling um, fear-related reactions. And then what we found is that um, in a moment where there is something threatening happening, the animal displays these um, threat-induced behaviors, there's also some inhibition of that behavior that's happening because it's like there's usually some competing force whenever a behavior is observed so and you can see that from your own experience so for example um when you get into like a car accident, maybe you get very angry and you're the person's first reaction is to get into a fight with the other driver. But most of the time people don't fight with the other driver and don't hit them. But that doesn't mean that impulse is not there. It's just that it's also being simultaneously suppressed. And usually the suppression wins, which is why people don't get into a bunch of fights all the time. And, and that's also a similar thing that's happening with the fear reactions where like both in mice and in people, when there is something fearful happening, there is this um, module in the brain that is trying to produce this fearful reaction, but there's also this other module that's trying to inhibit it. And, and we found that in this um, fear type behavior, the one part of the cortex called the prefrontal, middle prefrontal cortex was inhibiting the fear-related behaviors that were being produced by the amygdala. Mm -hmm. And that's what the title of the paper refers to as top-down control of fear. So the top, which is the cortex, is kind of inhibiting the down part, which is the amygdala, which is a more like a middle manager type of position, let's say, in a corporation. And it's inhibiting this fear-related behaviors that amygdala was trying to produce. So that's what the paper is about. And this top-down interactions again exist in most of the behaviors we um, do. And the cortex is often inhibiting a lot of these um, drives from older brain regions that are more near the kind of bottom of the hierarchy. And just to also make another point here, which is um, in neuroscience, when we say this region is more near the bottom of the hierarchy, it doesn't mean that they're less important necessarily, which is because that's not the case in the, the company example where people would say that the CEO is more important than the janitor. But in neuroscience, actually, the kind of bottom regions are the regions that are more important for survival, but they're just less important for uh, long-term planning and things like that. So, you know, like, like regions in the brainstem that are in the 
more bottom older part of the brain. Those are the regions that actually control the very important vital actions like breathing and things like that. And breathing is clearly more important than let's say playing chess but or solving differential equations. But those kinds of things are controlled by the cortex and um, breathing, heart rate, acidity in the blood, those kinds of things are more important to control more by these um, brains are in the kind of bottom of the top down conceptualization. Um, I think you, you mentioned before that most of your research involves mice. Um, can, can you uh, talk a little bit about what methods you use with mice and why, um, why the brain of a mouse um, is good for implying things about the human brain? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, so we use mice as a model for several reasons. So uh, a few of them is that they're good for practical reasons because they're small animals and they read reasonably fast so you can um, study several generations of mice somewhat quickly. Mm-hmm. And another important reason is that a lot of genetic tools have been developed in mice that are not available in other mammals like cats and pigs and dogs or gerbils or other things. Mm-hmm. And those genetic tools allow us to make more sophisticated measurements that than is possible in other mammals. So for example, maybe you're interested in understanding what is the role of this particular gene in this brain region. So it's relatively easy mice to um, knock out the function of that gene in that particular brain region and then you can see what's the effect of that in the behavioral interest in and that same experiment really can't be done very easily in other mammals. Mm-hmm. And similar to that, there are many other like genetic tools that are available in mice, but not other mammals like monkeys. Okay. And then to your second question of what we can learn from studying mice. So um, mice are also mammals like humans, and so uh, their brain is organized in a very similar way in terms of how the basic modules interconnect with each other and what what are their functions. So the question of what you can learn about humans by studying mice is also not a binary yes and no question. It's again a little more nuanced. So it's kind of first depends on what the question is. Mm -hmm. So mice and humans have some problems they have to solve that are virtually identical problems. So for example, both mice and humans really don't want to asphyxiate. It's very important for both animals to quickly detect if they have a drop in the oxygen supply and then initiate like a gasping reaction if that happens. And that's like not a species specific action, like that's virtually identical with mice and humans. So the circuits that control that type of behavior are extremely similar in mice and humans because they're no, sort of solving the exact same problem without any significant differences. Okay, so then if you look at something else that the brain is controlling but has more species-specific differences, then the differences between those circuits will be bigger. So for example, one thing that the mice do that humans don't do is uh, mice use their whiskers to navigate the world like they 
feel the surroundings, their whiskers, and then they know what's ahead of them. And we don't have that system at all, whisker using mustaches or whiskers to navigate the world. So if you were to study that in mice, you can't directly transpose that to what humans are using to um, compute their surroundings. But you can you still, even this whiskers case, find important um, for computational elements that are being done in the brain region that compute the whisker information in mice that are applicable to mammals and humans also. So for example, um, there is this part of the brain called whisker barrel cortex in mice and which computes the information from whiskers and those same types of circuits are used in the human visual cortex. So the same types of interconnectivity between cells and internal computations are somewhat similar between this part of the brain that uses uh, whisker information in mice and the part of the brain in humans that uses information from the eyes, even though those are very different things. So it depends on what the question is. And then uh, in our case, we are studying fear, which is something that makes animals be able to avoid threats, which is clearly important for mice and humans. Mm -hmm. But it's not as identical across the two animals as detecting asphyxiation, right? Because, for example, the things that mice and humans consider threatening are somewhat different. So, for example, mice are very scared of cat odors and people are not super scared of cat odors or mice are also very afraid of like bright open spaces because they're more vulnerable to predators finding them in those locations and humans are the opposite humans are more scared of uh, dark locations because they can't see as well what's happening so humans have a more of a fear of the dark rather than aversion to brightness and there are some things obviously that both mice and humans are afraid of like both are afraid of very high or very low temperatures or painful things like stepping on nails uh, so there are some things that are scary for both uh, animals but what we can see that's very similar between mice and humans is that the brain regions that get activated during exposure to these different threatening things is reasonably similar between mice and humans, even though the actual um, threat source might be different, like it might be a cat in the case of the mouse, and it might be like a person with a gun in the case of a human that's attacking you. So the source of the fear could be different, but it's activating many similar circuits in the brain. And we can see that based both on like human imaging studies where you can see which brain regions sort of light up when humans are scared and then you can see in mice measuring more directly which brain regions get activated during those situations and then in mice you can um, make uh, inactivations of those brain regions and see that oh that inactivation does cause a decrease in the fear behaviors and humans, you can't do brain inactivations directly, but there are some rare people that have 
um, lesions in various brain regions due to either strained diseases or strokes or um, wounds of various sorts that maybe happen to affect a region that's thought to be related to fear. And then you can see that those humans also then display um, decreased fear if they have lesions in those regions. So we do think it's somewhat similar. And what and in humans, although you, it's hard to inactivate brain regions, there are some studies showing that if you electrically activate those regions artificially, you can cause panic and fear-related um, behaviors in a person that's just in a surgical suite and nothing actually dangerous is happening to them. Okay. So it's pretty similar for fear, but again, not as similar as it would be for something more basic like detecting oxygen or uh, controlling respiration. All right. So towards the beginning of our conversation, you talked a little bit about how um, when the regulation of these circuits go awry for some reason, um, that these cause behavioral disorders or something along those lines. Um, have, you, have you been doing any work or um, do you think that there's any potential to use your work to try and develop maybe therapies or um, pharmacological methods that can help regulate those behaviors? Yeah, it's possible because, um, again, just like you said, a, a large portion of psychiatric symptoms, not just anxiety, but also other conditions are created by changes in the activity of brain circuits that have some useful function in normal situations because mm -hmm. it is really useful in a normal situation to be able to detect the threat and avoid it and display the appropriate reaction so that uh, you're not in danger. So that's clearly important for survival. And then yeah, when those same circuits get overactivated, it leads to um, pathological anxiety disorders. So if we can better identify which circuits actually control those behaviors, then that's the first step to developing um, some sort of pharmacological treatment that would be able to target that circuit, which you can't do if you don't even know what the circuit is. Mm. So it is important in that sense. But also, uh, it's equally or even more important to be aware of just life circumstances that we know are very strongly associated with causing those types of um, psychiatric symptoms. Mm -hmm. So for example, like we know that um, not having a strong social support network makes people much more um, susceptible to developing an anxiety disorder. So a lot of people develop anxiety disorders after having some kind of traumatic experience. But not everyone develops a pathological long-term disorder after having a trauma. Like some people do, some people don't. And then we know a lot about the differences between the people that do and don't. And one of those differences is, for example, that um, 
if the person has a strong social support network and close friends and families and other people that can um, help them and listen to them and support them, then those people are much less likely to develop a problem after having a traumatic experience. Or another thing that is very protective for the brain in general, not just for anxiety, but also for like uh, performance in memory and concentration and focus is uh, exercise seems to be extremely beneficial for brain function. So there are all these other um, kind of life circumstances that are not real actual treatments per se, but have very important roles in preventing the emergence of these problems to begin with. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think, um, I think that might be a good place to stop. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say or add? Uh, yeah, I guess what I would say is um, what is simply related, not just to neuroscience, but just to science more broadly, which is that, uh, you know, it's a procedure that can appear very expensive at times, and then it would seem that there are a lot of other more pressing situations in the world to to solve that where maybe those resources could be allocated and which would produce an immediate result. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of, even though that reality is there, it's important to um, be aware that it's really not a good question to sort of be very attached to exactly what will come out of a specific scientific project that is taking place at this moment because by definition they're always looking at the kind of frontier of knowledge so we are not very good at predicting which scientific project will lead to which particular important improvement in the population eventually and you can see that if you look at things that clearly are very important now. So for example, now electricity is very important, right? It, electricity saves millions of lives. It is used in like medicine, engineering, all sorts of human activities. And, and human life quality has been just unimaginably improved by electricity. Okay, so then if you look at what people were doing in physics, let's say in the early 1700s or something, which is when they first started studying static electricity and um, how electricity going through a wire changed the needle of a compass and things like that. And you ask them, why are you studying this electricity thing? They would not have answered in the 1700s for studying electricity because in the future people will use them to like you power every sort of machine in the world, it will make computers, it will be used in cars. Like a person of 1700s could not have said that. They would have said, oh, this is this interesting phenomenon that maybe might be useful for something. And whatever they would have guessed is clearly not what it became at this point. And, and, and that's easy to see now because we're 200 years removed from that. And so you can see what it was used for, but we have the same problem now, like the science that's being doing now, we're not very good at predicting what will come out of it in the future. But 
what is very clear historically is that it is a worthwhile investment of resource in the long term. Because, okay, if you imagine that in the 1700s, instead of studying electricity, if uh, all the resources were allocated to something else, like building a bridge or making better houses or something, then it would appear that making a better bridge has a more concrete impact at that time. But clearly in the long term, that would have been a short-sighted action. And so what I'd like to say in the end is that um, if scientific enterprise is just allowed to flow more freely without lots of immediate constraints and uh, on what it may or may not generate in the near future, it is clear that in the long term, it, that's where the innovation comes from that drives all the economic growth and development in people's um, living conditions. Okay. So that's the thing I want to end with. Okay, sounds good. So, um, yeah, so that, that's it for this week of science action. Uh, make sure to check out our latest podcasts available on global platforms. Um, and I guess I'll talk to you later.